Nyata. Hello, it's Alison here from a church in southwest Victoria called Sanctuary. I'm going a bit off lecture today and commenting on Luke chapter 1, the Annunciation. When you think of Mary, how do you imagine her? I don't know about you, but I've been steeped in the Western artistic tradition, and so when I think of Mary, the first thing that comes to mind are images from the Italian Renaissance. That is, I see an elegant, pale woman in a royal blue dress. Her skin is white, her hands are soft, her face is unlined, her hair is carefully done, and her serene mouth is gently closed. Often she sits in a cool, tiled Italian room, with perhaps a beautiful garden or a hilltop town visible through the window. The angel Gabriel is handing her a pure, white lily. Or else I think of pictures which portray her as the Queen of Heaven or as some sort of goddess. Again, she is dressed in a royal blue gown. Again, she is beautiful and has all the physical advantages of wealth. She wears a crown made of stars. And in these paintings, she's not seated in a luxurious room, but floats instead among the clouds. A picture tells a thousand words, they say, and these pictures are very telling. They suggest that Mary is wealthy, and that she moves in the upper echelons of society. Certainly, she's never engaged in manual labour. She's innocent, meek, submissive, untroubled and passive to the point of emotional blankness and she's utterly silent, which makes her in a patriarchal society the perfect woman. And it's interesting to me how often men preach this sort of image, extolling her absolute unquestioning submission as she becomes the God-bearer. But it's more interesting to me how if we set aside these representations, if we remove our patriarchal blinkers and go back to the text, we discover somebody very different. So let's forget those images of white skin, soft hands, submission and silence and take a closer look at Mary. Perhaps we can learn something from her about being God-bearers in this world. The first and most obvious thing to note is that she was not a European aristocrat. Mary was a first century Jewish peasant girl. She was betrothed and so probably about 12 years old. She was certainly not pale or tall or elegant nor was she wealthy. When we think of her, we should think small, stocky or scrawny, olive-skinned, deeply tanned. Her hands would have been hardened by field work and by grinding grain each morning between two stones, and the heels of her feet were probably calloused and dry. The second thing to note is that she wasn't unquestioning or submissive. In fact, Mary was curious. When the angel comes to her, the story follows a formula that we see again and again in the Bible. It's called an angelophany, and what happens is this. An angel or messenger from God appears to someone, and that someone is terrified. The angel says, don't be afraid, and then speaks the message. The person objects, the angel responds, the angel leaves. But in Luke chapter 1, Mary doesn't seem afraid at all. Instead, we are told, she's simply puzzled by the angel's greeting, and she debates what it might mean. We often hear that she pondered, a nice private feminine act. But the word is dialogizeto, to reason, 
to discuss, consider, debate or dialogue. In other words, she isn't quietly wondering to herself. Instead, she is intellectually and outspokenly curious and follows up the angel's pronouncement with a biological question. How can this be? She says, I've never known a man. So when we think of Mary, we need to be thinking of someone who is smart and unafraid, who exercises her faculty of reason even when an angel visits, and who asks good questions. When Mary asks, the angel reassures her that the Spirit of God will overshadow her, and that with God all things are possible. We know from the text that Mary's kinswoman, Elizabeth, is married to a priest. We also know that people then almost always married within their kin group. So it's very likely that Mary was a member of the priestly clan. And for a girl from the priestly clan, the consequence of pregnancy outside marriage was death. More precisely, strangulation by her own father at the door of the family home, followed by the burning of her body. It was not simply disgrace. The consequences were terrible. And so I suspect the angel's reassurance speaks not only to Elizabeth's surprising fertility, but to Mary surviving a pregnancy out of wedlock. For with God, says the angel, all things are possible. On hearing these words, Mary replies, Let it be with me according to your word. So she's not a passive person swept along by whatever happens to her. She listens, she reasons, and then she consents to God's action within her. She is God's co-creator and agent. What else do we discover from the text? Well, she's highly active. When Mary accepts the angel's commission to bear God's son, she doesn't shut her newly pregnant self in a quiet room put up her feet and turn on the whale music. Instead, she rushes to a Judean town in the hill country, travelling by foot on dusty roads, bristling with wild animals and bandits. And there she visits her cousin Elizabeth, and finds refuge, no doubt, until her kinswoman can negotiate a safe return home. And while she's there, she sings a song we now call the Magnificat, a hymn to justice which proclaims God's intention for Israel. In this song, the proud, the rich and the powerful who sit upon thrones are thrown down, and the poor, the lowly and the hungry are raised up. It's a song of revolution, which is why it's been banned at times from being sung or even spoken aloud. For example, during the British rule in India, by an oppressive government in Guatemala and by the military junta in Argentina. Putting this all together, which is another way to translate pondering, we see that Mary is no passive, silent aristocrat, but nor is she a little lady in the kitchen, barefoot and pregnant. Instead, she looks a lot like other people in the Hebrew tradition, the people that we call prophets. For example, she reminds me of Jonah. Jonah was given a word from God. He questioned, he pondered, he went on a journey, and eventually, he proclaimed the word to the people. She reminds me also of Gideon. He was visited by an angel. He too questioned his commission, then accepted it. And he proclaimed God's word to the people. She reminds me of Elijah, 
He received a word from God, he went on a journey, and then he proclaimed God's word to Ahab. And when Mary sings of the great reversal, she reminds me of Elijah stopping the rain, and so ending Ahab's rule. Or of Samuel removing his anointing from Saul, and transferring it to David, the new king. Like Jonah, Gideon, Elijah and the rest, Mary too is a prophet. The way her story is told places her firmly in Israel's prophetic tradition, and the Magnificat is a prophetic word from God. Most portrayals of Mary show her in a domestic scene, often a bedroom, or else they show her in some sort of infinite cosmic nowhere. But this is not the Gospel. The Gospel doesn't show us a domesticated Mary, nor a heavenly queen. Instead, we are shown an intelligent woman, a prophet, who is quite literally on the road. For we see her walking into the Judean hills, visiting with cousins. We see her giving birth, not at home, but in a stable in another town. We see her fleeing to Egypt and on the road to Jerusalem and outside a house where Jesus is. We see her at a wedding at Cana, at the foot of the cross and visiting the garden tomb. She's always outside. What we don't see is Mary at home engaged in domestic duties. She was a mother, she washed nappies, she baked bread, but this is not what we need to know about her. Unlike many other women in the Bible, Mary is not described as cooking or sweeping or sewing or fetching water. Instead, like the prophets of old, she is out and about in public places. She's not a passive receptacle who happens to be carrying baby Jesus, but an intelligent woman who debates with an angel and then assents to God's call. She's a holy poet who bears God's love in her womb, and in her words, and in her song. Well, this is all rather interesting, but what does it have to do with us? Well, some of us have been sold a model of womanhood, based on Mary the perfect, passive, submissive woman, or Mary the virginal, heavenly queen. But these are impossible ideals. None of us can be as obedient, as submissive, as silent, as vacuous, as fundamentally boring as the image of Mary handed down from too many pulpits and sold in too many gift shops. But Mary, the prophetic God-bearer, opens up all sorts of possibilities, and not just for straight cisgender women, but for all people. For we can all be prophetic God-bearers. We can all let God's word be written on our hearts and we can all assent to the Holy Spirit working in us to bring life where this seems impossible. We can all carry God's love and longing for justice wherever we go. So let us be like Mary. Let us welcome God in. Let us allow the Holy Spirit to overshadow and shape us, body, mind and spirit. Let us be God-bearers in this time and place, receiving and growing and birthing love into the world. Let us speak out in public spaces. Let our hearts be filled with song. And with Mary, let each one of us now pray, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me, according to your word. Your culture come, your will be done. Amen.
There's always more to read on our website. That's sanctuarybaptist.org. Sanctuary is funded entirely by members and supporters. If you'd like to support the work of this little church, you can make a donation via PayPal. And you can find the details for this on the website. This recording was made on the lands of the Eastern Ma Nation, where currently a revolting cold is making the rounds. And this month, Clematis microphylla is covered with seed tufts, earning its name of Old Man's Beard. The ocean is calm, the air is warm, and stingrays are swimming in the bay. The peace of the land be with us all. Amen. <laughs>